Welcome to Hot of the Cloud by Cloudonaut. We are your hosts, Andreas and Michael Wittig. Our weekly show is all about the latest AWS news and our recent experience building with AWS. On top of that, we are answering your questions at the end of the show. So use the hashtag AskCloudOnOut on Twitter or send us a direct message via LinkedIn. In case you're watching this live, feel free to use the chat to ask your question. So, Michael, um, this is a special um, show because it's the first time I'm streaming from a new office. I'm really excited about that. It's also the reason why this back looks a little bit boring <laughs> because I didn't move any, everything yet. <laughs> so, um, still in progress, but I'm, my streaming setup is already in place. So, happy to go live from this new location today. Oh, that's great yeah and, and they should they should fix our our latency issues in the stream so um if you watched the stream before and you had problems uh, so this was because of us not because of you and it should be fixed now in the new office right? yes hopefully hopefully um there's right. one more thing i want to announce before we start um which is uh, we have released the third volume of the builder's diary so the Builders Diary is a series where we talk to practitioners and learn from them. And in this episode, I've talked to Rico Nugit from Demicon about infrastructure pipelines with GitLab and Terraform Cloud. So this was really interesting because he's using a, diff a whole different approach than I've been using. Um, so I was really learning a lot from him. Uh, especially about uh, Terraform Cloud. So yeah, check that out. Um, you'll find the links in the show notes. Michael, so then I think it's time to dive into the AWS announcements. And as we didn't have a show last week, this is basically a roundup from the past two weeks. Um, so we don't pick every news item, every announcement. We pick the ones that are out of interest to us. Um, let me start. So the first one I found is um, introducing Amazon Neptune serverless. Um, so what is this about? So uh, first of all, Michael, did you ever use Neptune before? Nope. I mean, I, I used uh, craft databases, but not Neptune. So I used Neo4j, um, but yeah. As you said, it's a graph database. So basically it is about storing um, relationships between items and also analyzing and query them. And um, so I think, yeah, it's an interesting service. It goes in that direction of um, use the right database for the job. So that's basically uh, what Neptune is about. So now they have a serverless offering. So this sounds great. And I had a little look into it. So First of all, I think important to notice is um, that uh, Neptune Serverless is not available in all regions. Uh, it's only uh, available in six regions. So stuff like US East 1, US West, um, EU West 1 and 2, and Northeast um, uh, Asia Pacific 1. So yeah, it's rolling out slowly. And then how does um, Neptune serverless work? It is a little similar than um, um, Aurora serverless. You also basically define so-called Neptune capacity units. And the database basically scales automatically upon uh, based on the demand. And it scales from 2.5 Neptune capacity units to 182 
um, network capacity and uh, Neptune capacity units. So this is uh, something between five and 265 gigabytes. So that's the range the machine scales uh, or out of the box automatically. So this sounds interesting and um, I remember <laughs> that I did a rev um, basically a review of Aurora Serverless version 2 a few months ago. And one of the findings I had is that the pricing is really, I would say it's a little strange. I don't, actually, I don't understand the way they price for those services. So I had a look into the Neptune serverless pricing as well and tried to compare it to the on-demand pricing. Um, so Michael, I don't know, what would you expect? So, so what, is, what would you say, what should serverless cost compared to on-demand? So what do you... So how do you would I don't know how would how does the service need to be priced so that it makes you uh, sense to use it? I mean, for me, <laughs> it it should scale down to zero and then it should cost nothing besides the storage. Um, and it should be definitely like if I'm not running at one hundred percent utilization, which usually I don't do, it should be cheaper than the on-demand version. Yeah? You plan for your peak workload, right? So you provision, let's say, uh, let's say we provision. Um, 16 gigabytes memory. That's the the thing we need for our peak workload. I don't know, doing once a day, the, the, the workload peaks to that mm -hmm. or once a week or something. So we provision for that. So my assumption is that now when I compare an on-demand instance with that capacity to a serverless instance with the same capacity at peak level, it should cost me less in, in case I'm not, I don't have a utilization of 100% all the time. So that's what uh -huh. serverless should be about, right? Um, but the interesting thing is, and I can, I, I did a calculation and basically um, um, tried to visualize and calculate um, the provisioned price compared to the serverless price um, in relationship to the idle period of the database. So I'm starting with an uh, idle period of 1% and I'm ending at an idle period of 100%, which means an instance that does nothing all of the time. And what it's important to know is that Neptune Serverless uh, needs a minimum baseline NCU of 2.5. So it doesn't scale to zero, similar to Aurora Serverless version 2. And then I put in the numbers and I couldn't really believe my eyes because when I, when I compare a DBR6G large instance with Serverless, so with the same configuration, basically, both with 16 gigabyte memory, um, it turns out that there's no scenario in which the serverless one is cheaper than the on-demand instance. So I really don't know if I'm making a mistake. I, I really tried to <laughs> go through it multiple times. I couldn't find my mistake. Only when I use a larger, much larger instance type, for example, the uh, R6G2X large, then there is a sweet spot somewhere um, where um, when, I, when the on-demand instance idles more than 80% of the time, then the compared the same uh, serverless instance gets cheaper. So this is really, I don't know, it's, a, it's not really looking to me as a competitive uh, offer, the serverless compared to the on-demand. Maybe I'm missing something, so tell me in the comments. But I really tried to figure it out, and that's what I ended up with. But like one one question: you, the assumption is that you always run with the same like um, NCUs, right? That the 
capacity units. Capacity no, units. no, that's the thing. The, my that's that's a really simple example, of course, because I assume it's either utilized at hundred percent, so running at, okay, I see. or it's basically zero okay. percent. Okay, so when you say idle, then this is basically going down to this two point five NCUs. Actually, it is very similar with the. It's not that worse with Aurora Serverless version two, but mm -hmm. it, there's also my big concern was about the pricing. So yeah. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it's really a thing, Neptune Serverless. Let me know if you're mm -hmm. into, into it. But for me, it doesn't look like a competitive uh, offer. The one that I looked at in more detail the, and the news that I looked um, in uh, more detail is titled AWS Web Application Firewall launches challenge rule action and bot control for targeted bots. And so just by looking at the title, I basically had no idea what this is about. <laughs> Uh, so I have no idea what the challenge rule is and I have no idea what bot control for targeted bots is or what even is a targeted bot. Um, so turns out that what they call a targeted bot is basically, for example, when we run cloudonado.io, we, we, we have people out there that kind of go and, and just copy all our content in an automated way. And that is a kind of targeted bot. Um, it, it is kind of developed for the purpose of, of getting our content from the block kind of. And the tools that you can use for this is, for example, I mean, there is this very old school tool called Selenium, but there's also Puppeteer. And the one that I used recently is, um, and now I cannot <laughs> remember the name. It doesn't matter. Basically, it's some kind of headless browser automation thing that that you can use to open a website and and kind of act as if it is a real user. And so, for example, what I do is I kind of uh, look at some pages and, and I, I compare the ranking against others. So, for example, um, okay, so, but this is a targeted bot. Um, and what AWS WAF launched now is the following. And they also kind of restructured the whole offering a little bit as far as I see, because bot control was there for quite some time. And that's also that's actually why I looked into this because I tried out bot control when it was released and it was really super bad. So we enabled it for cloud and that I own it. It really blocks lots of traffic from real users, <laughs> and it it doesn't block lots of traffic from bots. Um, so it, it's I don't know it's not really working that well. And what they are now doing is and they call this intelligent threat mitigation. And there are a couple of I would say capabilities under this umbrella. One is um, around detecting if someone kind of tries to log in like to lots of accounts and tries trying out passwords and, th and things like that. And the other capability, and this is the new one, is basically the bot control for targeted bots. And what they do from a high level perspective is you, if it's a website, it also works for apps, then it works a little bit differently. But if it's a website, you embed a the so-called um, client application SDK. It's a like it's JavaScript, and what this JavaScript library does, it 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 generates a so-called token. It it is basically fingerprinting the, the the browser. So it it tries to identify the browser, and this is then added as a cookie. Um, the cookie is called AWS WAF token cookie, and this is kind of passed on like for every request, and. This is used by AWS WAF to kind of, it's kind of a session um, that, that they use. And then they do rate limiting on this token. So you cannot um, send more than, I think it's 
what was it? I think I, I I read somewhere that it's five requests or something like this. And then what they also do is they they run a so-called um, a challenge. A challenge is basically trying to detect if this is a real browser. And in very basic terms, it tries to figure out if this is a real, for example, has a, a JavaScript engine and stuff like this. So very simple bots, they just look at the HTML text. They never render the or download the, the pictures and the CSS and the JavaScript. They just look at the HTML. And a little bit more clever bots, they will also evaluate the JavaScript, but maybe they will not do certain things. Maybe they will not reach out to external network resources. And that's what happens in the challenge. And this is not visible to the user. It happens kind of in the background. And what you can also do is you can ask for a captcha. So for example, if the page that is requested is very, I don't know, is a sensitive page, uh, maybe the, uh, I don't know, in cannot come up with a good idea in our uh, scenario, but maybe in our, like if it's the, 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 the free chapter of our book or something, then you could have like a CAPTCHA challenge and then the, real, the user really has to solve a problem like a puzzle or something like this. And, and then this information is, is updated in the token and then the request is made again and then it is kind of, it passes through the web application firewall. And that is actually what uh, this whole feature announcement is about. And it only works with this little cookie thing that you inject using a piece of JavaScript uh, that you have to embed into your application. And it doesn't work for single page applications. Um, so that's like kind of a, um, a what's something to keep in mind. The other thing that you have to keep in mind is that it is only deployed in five regions. Uh, so we had US East 1, US West, um, and North California, I think it's US 1, right? Um, then we have Ireland, Paris, and also the Sydney region. So those are the five regions where you can use it at the moment. Um, so that's it. That's the feature announcement. Okay. So, so do you think it makes sense to um, deploy that in front of Cloud or Node.io? Does it make any sense to block certain traffic to to avoid costs? I, I'm not, I, I'm actually not sure if it avoids costs because you also have to pay for this. <laughs> Um, I, I think it would make it harder for others to kind of uh, copy the content. Um, but so, for example, if you run like an uh, Amazon.com or we, we also worked with um, a client back then where you can uh, like sell your used car and they want to protect against other people kind of reading their a whole catalog of, 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 um, uh, of entries uh, by just kind of uh, browsing through the site in an automated way. And, and they could use it probably to protect against that. Um, and yeah, in our case, I mean, we could try it, but I would, I haven't checked out the pricing actually. So I, that, I, 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 I forgot to do that, but I, I would try to do that before I enable it um, because they actually say that and for so capture stuff and so is expensive. Um, so what I was reading from the docs, but I, I haven't calculated it. Yet. Okay. Very cool, Michael. All right. So the next one that I picked, and this is a really small one. Um, but it, it sounds really crazy. And then I looked into the details and then it was not so crazy anymore. So um, the announcement is that uh, EC2 now enables easier patching of guest operating systems and applications with replace root volume. So basically what I was thinking is you can replace the root volume while the instance is running, right? It turns out that it's a little bit different. So what you can do is you can replace the root volume, which is, I mean, it's kind of cool. Um, but this is in an automated way, but this automated way uh, automatically reboots your instance. So you keep all the EBS volumes, you keep the networking config, you keep the instance store, 
Um, but you don't keep the memory. So, I mean, the whole thing kind of reboots while you do it. And that's it. And that's the feature. Wow. Okay. <laughs> 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 Sounded more um, amazing than <laughs> I had a look at in the first time. Okay. Um, so, Michael, yeah. let, maybe let me continue with the next one. So, um, I had a look into a small announcement about um, the Amazon Kinesis data streams adds capability to easily inspect data records in AWS Management Console. And actually, I, I thought this is really cool. Because that's what I was struggling when using Kinesis data streams for the first time. Because you're basically the data stream, you're putting your events in there, and at the beginning you don't have a consumer or only one consumer that you're um, programming. And if you want to debug things, there is no easy way to read the items from the stream. So to have a user interface for that and built into the management console that you already logged in, this is really cool. So I tried it out. Right. It works. So amazing. <laughs> so I got some um, events from our Marboard streams and tried it out. It's um, uh, if you are um, the UI is a little so the UI is a little strange maybe because for example if you decide to read the stream from the beginning. Um, then you click uh, show me the records and it doesn't show anything and you have to page basically one time to show the first page um, coming up. So sometimes it helps to just mm -hmm. click the next button and then the, the elements appear. I think that is because they're just using the API in a very raw sense and they haven't thought about the user interface at all. But yeah, it's fine. It works. Um, I think it's helpful for Marbot to sometimes debug things on the keys stream maybe. I don't know. Um, mm -hmm. Could be useful. Little little thing, improve things. I think especially for those who are starting out with data streams, this is cool. That's it. The one that I um, was interested uh, next is about default injection simulator service. And I wrote a review about that service um, uh, in the past. And I basically complained that it lacks lots of uh, capabilities. And this one is also was lacking. We can now... Um, simulate a network connectivity disruption. So this is implemented um, by a network access control entry. And you can block traffic either to everything, only the availability zone, um, to the whole VPC, to DynamoDB in S3, or to a custom prefix list. So yeah, that's basically what you can do. Um, and I think that is kind of um, a good starting point. And that's it. Um, so the other announcement that caught my attention is AWS Apron now supports privately accessible services within Amazon VPC. Uh, so this is cool because I think, um, <laughs> so actually the funny story is I decided to add AppRunner to our book, the Amazon Web Services in Action 3rd Edition. I decided to add AppRunner as a very simple way to get started with containers on AWS. And since I wrote that chapter a few months ago, <laughs> I modified it quite a lot because I had listed all the limitations of AppRunner. And um, now it turns out that AWS has solved most of them by shipping the, the, the missing features. So this is the, the last one missing. So basically what, what before that AppRunner was just offering a public endpoint. So you deployed your container with your web service and you deployed it to AppRunner and you just got a public IP address or public DNS name basically and you could access from everywhere on the internet and there was no way to restrict that. 
And now what we have is um, we have um, a way to uh, only make it accessible uh, within the VPC. And the way that works is um, you have to create, first of all, a VPC interface endpoint. Okay, that's what we <laughs> probably assumed what we need. And um, then um, you also basically you connect the VPC endpoint with your app runner service. So you need to combine those two things um, to make things work. And then what you can do is from your VPC through the VPC endpoint, you're basically reaching a VPC that you don't see because it's managed by AWS and some of their accounts. And from there, uh, the request gets uh, routed to your container running on App Runner. So that's basically how it works. Um, there's even um, a configuration for App Runner. You can uh, set the so-called ingress configuration for your App Runner service, and there you can set is public accessible, accessible to false, which means then you make sure the whole thing is really only accessible through the VPC endpoint and not through the internet. And hooray, it's also already available in CloudFormation. So we can start using that um, with infrastructure as code as well. Um, one thing that I noticed, which is a little, so it's different to what AWS does with the API gateway. So with the REST API gateway, you also can configure private APIs with a VPC endpoint. Um, there, um, the difference here is a little bit that this needs a VPC, the VPC endpoint does not support endpoint policies when you use AppRunner. So you cannot restrict access to this uh, VPC endpoint based on a uh, endpoint policy. This is a little working a little different. Also, the connection between the VPC endpoint and the um, AppRunner service is something I haven't seen in another service. At least I can't remember it. But yeah, I think it's cool that this is around. So for me, this is um, giving me the chance to um, try AppRunner in an enterprise environment. Uh, I think a few things are missing. I, as, the, as far as I've seen, there's still no SLA for the service. Uh, uh, otherwise, maybe I missed it, but I can't, couldn't find anyone. Um, so that is maybe on my list before I really would use it in production. But other than that, it's a really cool service to simplify the container workloads running in your accounts. Yeah, that sounds great, yeah. Did you have any other news item to share, Michael? I don't think so. Okay, cool. <laughs> so we are through the news from the last two weeks, uh, at least the ones that caught our interest. Um, a short break. Um, are you looking for a new job? AWS expertise is in high demand. And uh, here are some exciting job ads from our partners. First, our partner TechRacer is hiring cloud consultants focusing on AWS serverless development. So you should apply when you like building serverless applications with things like Lambda, TypeScript, CDK, DynamoDB, or serverless, and so on. Join TechRacer in Hanover, Duisburg, Frankfurt, Hamburg, Munich, Vienna, Lisbon, and Lucerne. Or are you into AWS, DevOps, infrastructures, code, continuous delivery? Our partner Demicon is hiring a senior lead cloud solutions architect, AWS. Um, so Demicon is a company based in Germany and they are uh, remote first and hiring within the EU. You will find links to both job description in the show notes. And if you're interested, you definitely should apply today. 
Okay, Andreas, that's cool. Um, so let's go on. And I have one um, little story to share, or should we go into the question first? So what do you think? Uh, share your short story first, I would okay. say. Okay. And then we take a look so, at the question. I'm running, um, or we have this service or this uh, product called Bucket AV uh, that is basically an antivirus solution for Amazon S3. And the the default option, the way uh, it works, is that it runs on easy to spot instances. And we always hear that spot instances, right, can be terminated at any time. So only run workloads on spot instances that can um, be uh, continued on another machine, basically. And this is perfect fit for our workload because we download a file, we scan it, and then we drop the result onto a, an SNS topic. And if that machine goes away, we just uh, kind of redo the, the file. It's not a big deal. Um, but I was interested in how often does this actually happen that such an instance is terminated. And there are two ways to get um, this information. Um, the first one is actually triggered a little bit before it actually happens. And this is called an easy-to-instance rebalance uh, recommendation and this is used for example by autoscaling groups if you configure it or if you turn the feature on to launch new instances before the spot instance is actually terminated so they, they basically try to um, avoid an interruption to the workload by adding instances before the other ones are kind of terminated and what I see in a couple of regions and this includes Ireland and 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 use um, East one that in the last I would say months, these actions or these uh, events uh, are occurring more frequently. And the instance types that I use is M5s or uh, T3s. And I really see this sometimes a couple of times per day. And we are not running uh, our big fleets of instances. It's just small uh, fleets of instances. And this is really that something that I learned uh, is basically you yeah, turn on the rebalance um, uh, setting in the autoscaling group. And then monitor, or kind of yeah, doch, um, monitor um, uh, what what's going on, how often this happens, because you can always increase the number of instance types the autoscaling group can kind of pick to launch capacity. And the more instance types you have in your pool, um, the more likely it can launch instances, and also the more availability zones you have uh, in your um, uh, autoscaling group. So. Without knowing that this is a problem by basically monitoring it, uh, you will not notice it. And I really just noticed this because of um, Marbo. This is the other product that we actually um, um, uh, develop. Uh, sends me Slack messages whenever that happens. And, and it, in the last couple of months, this really happens more or less daily. And before that, I never saw those messages. So this is something that changed. And that's what I learned. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting. So it's actually... So as we cannot see into what's going on into the spot uh, instances, um, so the only thing we have is um, basically look into um, yeah, such data basically to find out when, when things are changing. Very cool. Um, so Michael, we have a question um, from Wolfgang and he writes in and asks, uh, what is better, AWS code pipeline or GitHub Actions? <laughs> So, yeah, very good question. So um, maybe, M Michael, let me start with some observations and then you can mm -hmm. proceed. So um, I think, so we have been using AWS Code Pipeline very heavily over the past years. The main reason was um, that 
code pipeline offers a very easy integration with IAM, so it was very easy to get the credentials right, uh, the yeah, IAM role and stuff. Um, but we were also observing that, first of all, the user experience is a little clumsy because when you, for example, use GitHub and then you start a code pipeline, um, then yeah, you have to jump between those services to see what's happening to your deployment um, or um, you have to log into different AWS accounts if you deploy to multiple accounts. Uh, you have to jump around and f first look at your pipeline, then look to the account where you are deploying to. So the, the, user, the user experience for a developer is not too impressive, actually. Um, and the other thing is that we are noticing that code pipeline, especially when you're using it together with code build, is relatively slow because spinning up those code build um, actions, yeah, take some time because of the overhead of starting the container every time for each of those tasks. So, yeah, so the so I think that one big difference between the, those two is the, the user experience for the developers is, I would say, better with GitHub, especially, of course, if you're using GitHub for your code um, repositories. And um, the other thing, I think the reason that uh, code um, GitHub Actions is interesting is because it's it's running on on one node basically the whole the whole pipeline runs on one node or at least yeah it's not 100% true but more more part of the pipeline run on the same node and that's less handoff between different steps do you have something to add yeah so maybe the the limitations that that we uh figured out already is like one thing that we kind of missed is the manual approval step mm -hmm. um that we have in code pipeline and it it is available in in github actions but it It, it basically uses a feature called environments and you can, for each environment, you can have different kind of reviewers, but, mm -hmm. and then you can wait for this uh, in your GitHub action or in your, basically in your workflow. Um, but this requires an enterprise uh, plan and uh, we don't have an enterprise plan. <laughs> <laughs> I think the other, the other thing that, um, that you found out, Michael, is the thing about parallelization. So oh, yeah. running steps in parallel. Oh yeah, that's right. So in 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 code pipeline, what you can do basically by default, if all the actions um, run in on the same um, run order, which is a number, then they will execute in parallel. And in GitHub Actions, things are a little bit different. So jobs run in parallel by default, but you can have dependencies, and all the steps in the job run in sequence. So if you, for example, have If you use the official AWS action uh, for deploying CloudFormation stacks, you will have one step per stack. And then this will just like one stack after each other will be deployed um, if, if you run it in the same job. I mean, you could in theory have multiple jobs and then kind of, but it, it gets very complicated to make this parallel basically because you also have to um, take care of the input and stuff like this. Um, so this is a little bit more complicated, um, but... What I did for, because the CloudFormation stack deployment was the biggest pain point for us um, because it was not running in parallel. So I just forked the, the action from AWS and, and this is, by the way, uh, kind of unmaintained anyway so that the, the repo is archived um, and it throws lots of deprecation warnings. So I forked that uh, and, and I just added the capability that you can deploy stacks in parallel. So now you can have um, multiple stacks in one action basically Uh, sorry, multiple stacks in one action, and and then it, you know, it it just works in the same way as code uh, pipeline, and it is uh, not a problem anymore. 
Very good. Yeah, so I think this is a good summary. Uh, I've uh, pasted the link to um, your blog post to the show notes and to okay. the chat as well. Great. So you've written about that in, in more detail. Um, so uh, I think that helps. And yeah, Wolfgang writes, um, he, he finds code pipeline harder um, because of the buckets between the stages. Uh, so basically, yeah, code pipeline hands over the state by using an S3 bucket hands it over from step mm -hmm. to step or from action to action. Yeah, and it's some, actually, it, that's correct. It's sometimes a little tricky to debug things when you're looking into the, the artifacts from, from one yeah. stage to the other. Yeah. I mean, definitely GitHub Actions is easier to use. So, I mean, that's... Yeah. that's so I think the whole user system. experience is definitely yes. a, a good argument. Okay, thank you for this question. Um, if you have questions, send them over um, during the week. Um, ask Claudio now or reach us via Twitter in the comments on LinkedIn wherever you can find us send us your questions we'll have to uh, answer them next week so yeah that's it we'll be back next week subscribe to the Claudio Now newsletter or our podcast or the YouTube channel to make sure you do not miss the upcoming shows Uh, also, we want to thank our supporters who make this show possible. And uh, please consider supporting our work um, with a recurring or one-time donation as well. You will find details and links uh, to all of that in the show notes. So thanks a lot for listening and watching. Bye. Bye. Thank you.